The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. First uh, Peter chapter 5, uh, the book of First Peter is quickly drawing to its conclusion, uh, but even though we're right near the end of the book, uh, Peter isn't making it easy for us to move on. Uh, there's still so much more that he wants to say, so this, this isn't me trying to slow Peter down uh, in order to lengthen my sermon series. This is Peter slowing me down uh, because there's so much more that he wants us to pay attention to. He's packing it in. And as uh, Peter brings this powerful and convicting book to a close, he continues to address the theme that runs through this entire epistle, which is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. It's how we began the book in chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, uh, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials In uh, verse 7, it says that uh, the proof of their faith was being tested by fire. And now here at the end of the book, uh, all the way at the close of the book in chapter 5 and verse 9, he speaks about the same experiences of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And in chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So throughout this entire book of 1 Peter, the theme of suffering has been consistent. In the space of just five chapters, Peter uses the specific word for suffering 16 times, almost twice as many times as any other book of the New Testament. And there's many words in addition to that that are related to suffering, uh, words like being rejected, reviled, slandered, harshly treated, distressed, tested, insulted, intimidated, troubled, experiencing sorrow, difficulty, being put under fire, and being put to death. And one of the most common questions that we have as believers when we start to experience some of these things, when we start to experience difficulty and distress and trouble and sorrow, uh, when we are suffering for righteousness sake, one of the, the questions that immediately often comes to mind is, what is God doing in this? Here I am suffering. God, what are you doing in this? Is there something that you want to teach me? Is there something that you want to show me? Is there something that you want to reveal about me in this suffering? What, what is God doing in all of this? Because we, we trust that God has a good and glorious purpose in all that comes to pass. And Peter has been careful to list out some of those purposes for us. Why does God allow and ordain suffering? What are those purposes for which God ordains suffering? Number one, suffering proves our faith. In chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that the proof of your faith is tested by fire. Suffering is like the, the crucible that tests the genuineness of our faith. Whether or not our faith is the real gold or not. Over in chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, uh, Peter says, Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. So so suffering is a test from God. It proves the genuineness of our faith. It proves 
that our faith is the real thing. Not only that, suffering rewards our faith. In chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that, that that which is tested is also rewarded in glory. So, so the, 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 the faith that is tested is also a faith that is rewarded. In chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith, which is tested, is also rewarded. And that's a theme that shows up often in the, the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You know, so, so suffering that's, that proves our faith is rewarded. Our faith is rewarded. Suffering rewards our faith. Number three, suffering also displays our faith. It puts our, our faith on display as a witness before the watching world. Chapter one and verse, uh, chapter two and verse 12, sorry. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them. So, so here it is. It's for the purpose of being observed as unbelievers observe your faith. They will glorify God in the day of visitation. When you continue to do what is right in the face of persecution, it gives you an occasion to give an account for the hope that is in you. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Your faith is being put on display. You know, for those that are drawn to that faith, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. For those that are repelled by that faith, they're put to shame. Our faith is put on display when we're willing to suffer for it. Also, suffering also sanctifies our faith. It sanctifies our faith. The, the willingness to suffer for our faith actually brings us into greater conformity with Jesus Christ. In chapter uh, 2 and verse 21, uh, Peter says, You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We're in the footsteps of Christ when we're willing to suffer for doing what's right. That's a sanctifying process. We're brought into greater conformity with Jesus Christ when we're so committed to the will of God that not even suffering would stop us from following the will of God. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's a sanctifying process when we're so committed to doing what's right that we're even willing to suffer for it. Just as Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the kind of attitude that we should have. We should arm ourselves with the same purpose. It's a sanctifying work. In chapter 3, 15, uh, Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's a sanctifying process. And also, lastly, suffering strengthens our faith. Suffering strengthens our faith, which is what Peter addresses in chapter 5 and verse 10, if you're already there. It says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered, this is what God is doing. This is what God will do. He will strengthen you through that. He will establish you. He will confirm you. He will perfect you through your suffering. And all of that 
and more is what God is accomplishing in our suffering. He's proving our faith. He's rewarding our faith. He's displaying our faith. He's sanctifying our faith and he's strengthening our faith. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And part of that plan includes the path of suffering. That is God's plan for your life. The path of suffering. And God uses suffering as a tool for your good and for his glory. But what Peter lets us know is that God isn't the only one who has a plan for your life. He's not the only one who has a plan for your suffering. Because opposing God is the enemy of our souls. And that very same suffering that God uses as a tool, Satan will use as a weapon against you. Same suffering. Same suffering. God has a purpose in your suffering, and Satan also has a purpose in your suffering. Satan has a will for your life. And what's Satan's will for our lives? You don't have to wonder about it because it's laid out for us right here in 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 8, listen to what it says. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What is Satan trying to do? He's, he's trying to devour you. To devour you. And what does it mean for Satan to devour someone? It's explained in the next verse. Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. It says, but resist him firm in your what? Your faith. What is it that Satan is trying to strip away from you? It's the very same thing that you're supposed to be standing in. That's what he's trying to rip away from you. It's your faith. And that's what he's trying to devour. That's, that's his diet. He, he preys on your faith. And if he can sink his teeth into your faith and strangle the life out of it, he will. The devil seeks to destroy faith. And he's been doing the same thing from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, what's that all about? What's that all about? He, he's introducing doubt where there was certainty. You, you can't trust God. He's, he's not trustworthy. Job chapter 1 and verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. What's Satan trying to get Job to do? He's trying to get Job to deny the Lord. He's a faith eater. And after Job's body was smitten with boils from his crown down to his, the soles of his feet, and he's sitting on a, on a heap of his own flesh that he's just scraped off of himself... In Job chapter 2 and verse 9, then his wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Just be done with this. Haven't you had enough, Job? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. After Jesus was sent into the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. 
Command that these stones become bread. What, what, what do you mean, if? <laughs> what do you mean, if? The Father's already declared that Jesus is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So what is Satan doing? Coming behind the Father's declaration. He, he's trying to introduce doubt where there was certainty. If you're really the Son of God, what are you doing out here in the wilderness starving yourself for? Why don't you take the will for once in your life and do something for yourself? The intention was to devour his faith. What's with this confidence in your father? Doesn't, does he always have to do things the hard way? <laughs> Aren't you tired of suffering? The very author, author of this book, 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, knows what he's talking about because he also had an experience with Satan. And what was Satan after? He was after the very same thing. He was after Peter's faith. Luke chapter 22. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon. That, that's never good when he says it twice like that, you know. Simon, Simon, uses his old name. You're not acting like a rock right now, so I'm not going to call you Peter. I'll call you by your old name. I'll call you Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your what? That your faith may not fail. What was Satan after? Satan was after Peter's faith. He's the faith snatcher. That's what Satan is. He's a faith snatcher. And if he can get to your faith before you do, he will. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 19, it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. You know, before you can even believe, Satan comes to try to pick the word out. I, I don't want you to hear that. I don't want you to believe that. I'll snatch it out before you even have time to think about it. He's a faith-eating predator and the enemy of all that's good. And he'll take the same suffering that God intends to use as a tool and use it as a weapon against us. Through suffering, God is proving our faith is genuine. But through suffering, Satan wants to discredit our faith as being fake. Through suffering, God rewards our faith for enduring. But through suffering, Satan robs that reward when we fail. Through suffering, God is displaying our faith before a watching world. But through suffering, Satan wants to hide our faith from the waiting world. Through suffering, God is sanctifying our faith, making us more like his son. But through suffering, Satan is corrupting our faith, blending us in with the world and making us more like himself. And through suffering, God is strengthening our faith. But through suffering, Satan is weakening our faith and our resolve to serve the Lord. Do you serve God for nothing? What are you getting out of this? Same suffering, different goals. Satan has a plan for your life. And he'll use the same trial that God uses to test you, and he'll turn it into a temptation. The same tree in the middle of the garden that was meant to be a test by God was turned into a temptation by the devil. Same tree... Different goals. God desired faithfulness. Satan was after the fall. And the same is true in our sufferings. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 
chapter 5. There's so much contained in these few verses. So practical, so helpful for us. Let's go ahead and dive in. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 8. It says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we thank you for this text. Father, we thank you for uh, just the, the revelation that you give, for the, the warnings that you give to us in Scripture, uh, that we're not left to our own devices. And Father, that we're not surprised by Satan and his schemes, but uh, you've revealed those schemes to us in your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us as a church to take heed. Uh, Father, that we would submit ourselves to the Scriptures, that we would humble ourselves before you. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned throughout the entire uh, book of First Peter, that theme of suffering has been consistent, but this is the first time that Peter lets us know that there's more going on behind the scenes. This is like the, the sixth chapter of Ephesians, uh, where it reveals to us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And as one commentator writes, uh, at last the true nature of the Christian's opposition is made clear. It is the embodiment of supernatural evil, the devil. Christians are thus involved in more than just a conflict between competing lifestyles or cultural understandings. They are involved in the final battle between good and evil, between God and the ultimate power of evil. It is for that reason that their remaining, their remaining faithful to the Christian calling is invested with such great importance. There, there's more going on behind Job's faithfulness than just a man succeeding a trial. Behind that trial was a cosmic battle in the heavens between God and Satan that Job knew nothing about. And right here before Peter signs off this letter as he's been talking about suffering and how to prepare for suffering and how to perceive suffering and what you're supposed to do to stand in suffering. He he just pulls the curtain back a little bit and says, "I, I want you to see what's going on behind the scenes. It's much more than your human oppressors who are at work. So he pulls back the curtain for us to see that there's an entire world of wickedness behind the suffering that we endure in this life. And for the most part, people are completely unaware of what's happening. They, they don't know that their pawns being moved around on the chessboard of the world. They have no idea. You know, when, you're, when your employer becomes unreasonable and treats you harshly, as it talks about in chapter 2 and verse 20, they don't go home thinking, man, was I a tool of, the Satan, of Satan today or what? I was just being used by the enemy today. That's not what he's thinking. But is that how he's being used? <laughs> That's exactly how he's being used. If you have a, a husband who's disobedient to the word or you have a, a wife who's unsubmissive, they don't think of themselves as being used by the enemy to try to devour your faith. They don't think of you as sleeping with the enemy. But are they devouring your faith at that moment? Is that what they're doing? Are they being used as a tool by Satan? The answer is yes. 
And when the society around us slanders us or the government makes decisions that have a direct impact on the free exercise of our faith, they're not necessarily conscious that they're being used as instruments in the deceiver's hands. They're not aware of that. And for the most part, the suffering that we endure is veiled. But Peter pulls the veil back and makes it clear that there's an entire world of wickedness that lies behind the suffering that we face as believers. In 1 John 5 and verse 19, it says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's a world of wickedness behind all that we see. And when Christ returns, that invisible world is made visible. You know, according to, to Psalm 2, in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, the, the world will marshal itself together to try to overthrow King Jesus. And that's not new. It's just revealing what's already in their hearts. We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want King Jesus. We want to be in charge. So when Jesus returns, he's not going to return to a world that's neutral, just ready to roll over and give him control, but a world that's hostile and ready to fight. Why? Because the enemy is behind it. The enemy's behind it. And if you look at the empires of the world, those that came into power, there's been a constant war against the God of the heavens. The Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold and said, Daniel 3 verse 11 but whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. That was a kingdom that stood against God. The Greek empire, there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, took over the Jewish temple, renamed it for Zeus, set up a pagan altar there, sacrificed swine on the Jewish altar, shoved it down the throats of the priests, prohibited circumcision, Sabbath observance, burned copies of the Torah, ordered sacrifices to pagan gods at various altars around the country. That was another empire that stood against God. The Roman Empire, many of the Roman emperors were revered as gods. In uh, AD 41, there's an emperor by the name of Caligula who tried to erect a statue of himself in the Jewish temple and asked for people to call him Jupiter. And we know that there's going to be a future antichrist 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This, this is a long war against God. Long war against God. They, they don't win, but it's a long war that they're marshalling against him. There's an unseen world of wickedness behind the world that we see and the persecution of this world has a target in mind. The target is the church, and it's aimed at ripping your faith apart. That's what it's aimed at doing. But we're not surprised by this. We're not caught off guard by this. Why? Because we've been warned. The second Corinthians 2.11 says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. And he's been using the same game plan for years. To either intimidate the church into compliance or integrate with the church until it's compromised. And the strategy works. The strategy works, so why change it? You know, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Satan's been doing the same thing for thousands of years. And it's been working for thousands of years. You know, the question is, when is the church going to wake up? 
Peter says we need to be aware of it. Number one, be careful or be watchful. Take a look at verse eight again. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter speaks about this attitude of awareness, watchfulness. It says, be sober, be on the alert. But, but what does he mean by that? Now, that first command uh, to be of sober spirit or to be sober-minded in some of your translations literally says, be sober, be sober. It's, it's literally used for abstaining from wine or freedom from intoxication. You know, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine. And there are those obvious dangers associated with the sinful abuse of, of alcohol. But that's not all that's meant by this word. In, in scripture, the call for sobriety is most often used metaphorically to speak of the kind of thinking associated with being sober. To, to, to have a clarity of mind, rational thinking, clear-headed reasoning. And sobriety is used to describe that because those who are intoxicated experience a, a lack of judgment, impaired perception, a substantial loss of the uh, ability to process information. If you flip back to, to chapter 1 and verse 13 of, of Peter, uh, Peter's already used this same word to speak about a readiness of mind. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. So he explains what, what keeping sober in spirit means. Preparing your minds. Get your mind ready. Get your mind right. And that word for prepare, preparing yourselves, anazonumi is a, a word that means to gird up your loins. You, you'll see that in some of your translations. To gird your loins up. And we covered this before, but in the ancient Near East, both men and women wore these long flowing garments that hung loose about their bodies. But if you're preparing for some kind of strenuous activity or a battle, you'd have to pull up those loose ends, pull it up, put it down into a belt or a sash, cinch it down, tie it down to prepare yourself for action. And Peter tells these believers that you need to do the same thing with your thinking. You can't just allow your, your mind to hang loose and free. You know, I'm here one day, I'm over there the next. You know, does it really matter what I believe? You need to get the truth locked down. Tie it down, cinch it in. You need to be vigilant to hold on to biblical truth, especially as it relates to your salvation. Again, fix your hope in chapter one, verse 13. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. And again, being sober in spirit being used metaphorically to speak about clarity of mind, rational thinking, clear-headed reasoning about your salvation and about the future hope of believers. That's what provides stability during suffering. Why don't you flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just want to show you another example of how this word is used in Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is uh, Paul's final letter and his final charge to Timothy. And in chapter 4 of his letter. He's exhorting Timothy to guard the truth. Don't let it go, Timothy. And why does the truth need to be guarded? Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their, to their own desires, will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, stories, I love those stories. Fables, imaginations. Why? 
Why do they want to turn aside of that? Because that's what scratches the itch. That's, that's what I want to hear. I, I don't want to hear definitive truth. I want to hear this may be true, that may be true. Let me tell you a story that makes you feel good. None of it may be true, but, but it sure helps us, doesn't it? Just like a free-flowing garment, just kind of loose, hanging about a person. But you, Paul says, verse 5, in opposition to all that, you be sober in all things. Tighten it down. Lock it in. And endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So what is, what is Paul talking about when he tells Timothy you need to be sober? He's saying that, that you need to stay grounded, Timothy. Don't, don't give yourself over to the mob that wants to hear something to, to satisfy their curiosity or to uh, satisfy their lusts. Don't, don't give in to the desires of your flesh that craves popularity and pleasure and relief from hardship. Endure hardship with me, Timothy. Don't look for the easy way out. Don't just seek the relief. Endure ridicule for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the ministry that God has given you to do. That's what sobriety looks like. I don't play games with the truth. So what does it look like when I'm being intoxicated by the world? How do I know I can't walk a straight line spiritually? How do I know that I, I can't follow the, the truth when it's being waved in front of me and I become dizzy? How do I know I'm not sober? It's when I'm more influenced by what people think than what God thinks. I'm under the influence. More, more influenced by what, what people think than what does God think. And if that's where you are, there's no way that you're going to be able to stand up in the evil day of persecution. When the devil bears his teeth, you won't be ready. If you're more concerned about what people think about you than what God thinks about you, you're not ready. You need to sober up. And you also need to wake up. Wake up. That's the second word that Peter uses back in 1 Peter chapter 5. To sober, to be sober, to, to be awake, alert, is the, the way that it's translated in the NASB. It, it literally means to wake up. That's literally what it means. It's used over in uh, Matthew 26, verse 40, where Jesus came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for an hour? Over here dozing off, literally used for falling asleep. But it was a, a common metaphor for being vigilant, keeping your eyes open, being aware of the dangers around you. Now, Paul used this same metaphor over in Acts chapter 20 in verse 29 to 31, where he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I tried to warn you about this, guys. I tried to tell you ahead of time. Don't, don't get so comfortable in your ministry that you think it can't happen to me. That's part of humility, right? That's what we talked about earlier in chapter 5. Be humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. I'm telling you, you need to keep your eyes open. Don't think that you're, you're so strong. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think it can't happen to you. And both of these words are used together to describe readiness, watchfulness, vigilance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6 says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Using the same two words. Be alert and sober. 
For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. We shouldn't be sung to sleep by the devil. We need to be watchful. We need to be aware. Why? Because Satan's watching you. We need to be watching out for him because he's watching out for you. He's actively on the hunt. He's waiting for you to slip. He's present. He's active. And as I mentioned last week, all the words that are used for the devil, prowling, roaring, seeking someone to devour back in 1 Peter 5, are all present and active ideas. This is what Satan is doing right now. Satan is not presently in hell, although that's the way that he's often depicted and imagined that Satan's in hell, you know, with a pitchfork and a long tail and everything else, right? Satan's not bound up somewhere, you know, because a a word of faith teacher says, Satan, I bind you. I cast you into the pit, Satan. Be gone, Satan. I, I used to hear that a lot growing up in some churches. Satan, I bind you, Satan. Well, who keeps letting them loose? <laughs> Who's letting them loose? We, we don't have any evidence of that anywhere in Scripture that we have the authority to bind Satan. That's, that's born out of a false interpretation of Matthew 16, which has nothing to do with binding Satan. It's talking about forgiveness. Today, Satan is not bound. He's present, he's active, and he's walking about. The, the word for prowl, prowl, literally means to walk around. He's walking to and fro through the earth. That's, that's what he's doing. There's some charismatic teachers that say we can bind him. There's some views of eschatology that, that teach that he's already bound. But that's not what First Peter is saying. He's saying he's roaming around. <laughs> Which is what he was doing back in the book of Job. Remember that? Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Notice that the Lord started the conversation about Job. I'm just hoping he's not starting conversations about me. (laughs) It's like, like, do you have to give him any ideas, Lord? Just like, can can I just like be left alone? Have you considered my servant Job? Look at him, Satan. It's like, no. (laughs) For there is no one like him on all the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And the Lord is the one who sent him after Job. How, How are we going to bind Satan when the Lord is granting permission to Satan to go after Job? Go after him. Yeah, have have you considered him? We don't have the power to bind Satan. He will be bound in the future 4,000 years under the authority of Jesus Christ who will send an angel to throw him into the abyss according to Revelation 20 and verse 2. But Satan today is roaming about, walking to and fro through the earth, seeking somebody to devour. And Peter describes his activity as the activity of a lion. A a lion would have been a, a fitting picture for strength, ferocity, And his attacks against us, it's a a fitting picture of fear and intimidation. That's what Satan is trying to do. Fear and intimidation, which is created by persecution. There's threats. Like I said, there's there's an unseen world behind the seen world. So, So when you're being threatened because of your beliefs, because of how you practice your Christianity, when you're being threatened and pressured by the world... 
You need to understand that there's something else that's going on behind the scenes, that Satan is active. This, this is the roar of the lion, trying to frighten you until you're paralyzed. I, I, I don't want to move because I'm not sure when he's going to strike. Like Satan is using the persecution of this world to intimidate the Christians into fear. In Psalm 7, David often described uh, his persecutors as lions. Psalm 7, verse 1 and 2, it says, Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver Psalm 17 and verse 12 says, He is like a lion that is eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places, arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. David, David sees his persecutors as a lion. They're, they're coming after me. They're trying to drag me in. They're trying to devour me. Lord, will you stand for me? Lord, deliver me. Psalm 57, David was on the run from Saul. Psalm 57 and verse 4, he says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. He described his persecutors, his tormentors, those that afflicted him. They're, they're the lions that are after me. And who is the great lion behind them? That's Satan. That's the devil who's after him. The devil is trying to intimidate him. Psalm 22, which is a prophetic word about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the tormentors that surrounded the cross are described as ravening lions. Psalm 22, verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. And behind those persecutors was the prowling of the adversary. Another picture of the lion is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just flip over there real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is describing his first trial before Nero. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse... Actually, I'll start at verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 16. Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Eusebius, the, the church historian, understood Paul to be talking about his initial deliverance before Nero. Nero was understood to be the lion, but could also be understood as a reference to, to Satan, because Satan is the lion who's behind Nero. <laughs> Another example of the devil being used Behind earthly rulers is in a prophecy in Revelation 2 and verse 10. The church of Smyrna is told, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Does that mean that the devil is there with the keys and, you know, opening the door and locking them up? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's saying that Satan is behind those that are locking you up and putting you behind bars. Ezekiel 28, when a lament was taken up for the king of Tyre, it also pointed to Satan, who was the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28 and verse 14. But, but what I'm trying to point out here is that the suffering that we experience as Christians is not simply due to human suffering. Behind the human suffering, there's, there's lurking a ravenous lion who's seeking someone to devour. And the word that's used for someone is indefinite. He's seeking someone. 
Meaning that uh, he may have a preference about whom he devours, uh, but he'll take anyone and you'll do just fine. <laughs> you know, sometimes you see those, those nature shows and, you know, the lion is after, you know, the gazelle or whatever else. And, you know, he's after one, but that one's a little too fast. So he turns around and grabs another one. I'll take you. You're, you'll do fine. I'll just take someone. And that's, that's Satan. He's after somebody. Anybody that he can find. And the word for devour is the Greek word kata pino. Pino means to drink and kata means down. Literally, it means to drink down, to gulp down. The goal is to make a complete end of you. And that's what Satan desires. Numbers 23, the, the nation of Israel was described like a lion. Balaam prophesied, behold, a people rises like a lioness and as a lion, it lifts itself it will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Numbers 23, verse 24. And that's the kind of picture that Peter has in mind. That this lion will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. To drink it down. Katapino. Satan is looking to devour his prey. And what are you called to do as a believer? Back to 1 Peter chapter 5 again. What are you called to do? Look at verse 9. Resist him. <laughs> Let's think about that one for a moment. We're talking about the devil. The diabolos, which means the accuser, the slanderer. And I'm sure that he wouldn't have to look long to find an accusation against our lives, right? This is the supreme embodiment of evil in Scripture He's sometimes referred to simply as the evil one. And you don't have to think about like, you know, who's he referring to? You know, is he talking about Trump, about Biden? I mean, who's he talking about? The evil, the evil one. I, no, you don't have to ask the question. You know who he's talking about. Satan, there's only one person that that refers to. The evil one. The originator of evil. He was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. According to Isaiah 14, he was the morning star who fell out of heaven. So we're talking about a high level of angelic being. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You've been cut down to the earth. You've weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. That's who we're talking about. The one who weakens nations. The one who tries to ascend to the place of the most high. One third of the entire angelic population followed him in his rebellion against God. Revelation 12 verse 4 says, His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. His wars against the holy angels. Even, even holy angels don't pronounce a railing accusation against Satan. In Jude verse 9 it says, But Michael the archangel, this is the, this is the big dog, okay? Chief angel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to mess with you today. He's considered the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. He's the ruler of this world, who, who, who operates the world system. He's the prince of the power of the air, who's now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 and verse 2. He claims the kingdoms of the world are his, they belong to me. 
He has the power over death, Hebrews 2 and verse 13. He seduces believers. He deceives the nations. He's my adversary back in 1 Peter 5. He's, he's spoken of as my adversary. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil. He's against me. He's my opponent. That was originally used for an opponent at law, but just came to mean anybody who opposes you. He's against me. And now you're telling me that he's a roaring lion seeking to devour my faith and drink the blood of the slain. And now you're telling me just just resist him. (laughs) Resist him. How am I supposed to do that? (laughs) How am I supposed to resist him? Amos 3.4 says, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? I mean, if, if Satan's roaring, it's obvious that he's already caught me, that I'm already his dinner. He's already roaring. Does a, a lion roar when he doesn't have prey? He, he has before his prey. How am I supposed to just resist him? We're no match for that. And you're absolutely right. The German reformer Martin Luther believed that he was often afflicted by the devil. And I believe he was. And at times, the presence of Satan to him felt tangible. So tangible that he would pick up his inkwell and throw it in the direction where he thought Satan was standing. Just because he, he, he was under this, this sense that I know I'm being attacked. And at times, the, the presence of Satan even felt tangible. By the way, that's a, a bad approach. Don't, don't think you can throw you know, an inkwell at Satan and get rid of him. That's... That's, that's a bad approach. Don't follow Luther in that respect, okay? Don't follow Luther on that. But he's saying that, that I, I understand that I'm in a battle. I'm in a spiritual battle here for the truth. And he wrote these words, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. <laughs> there's nobody on earth that's able to deal with Satan. There, there's nobody. No earthly match for the power of Satan. Luther often became depressed. And the content of his depression was always the same. The loss of faith that God was good and the loss of faith that God was good to me. That's where he struggled. To to believe that God is good. And to believe that God is good to me. And aren't we plagued by some of those same doubts? God, are you really good? I I know that's what you say, God. But you see, I'm going through this persecution on my job, and I'm not sure when it's going to let up. Like, Lord, I know what you say, but, but is it true? <laughs> is that really true about you, God? Are, are you really good? Lord, I'm, I'm experiencing this, this affliction in my family, and I've seen you be good to others. I can see that over there, and it's almost like I'm, I'm looking through the through the window at the goodness of God being poured out over here. Lord, I, I know that you're good to them, but, but are you good to me? <laughs> and we start to doubt. Aren't we plagued by those same doubts? If God is really good and he's really good to me, why aren't I experiencing it? And why am I suffering for doing what's right? <laughs> Lord, I'm, I'm suffering for being righteous. And I don't understand it. Lord, I mean, you know, trouble don't last always, but it seems that way for me. And Peter says, you need to resist those doubts. 
Resist those doubts. How? Resist him firm in your faith. And it's important that we understand what it means to be firm in faith. It's not simply a, a faith in my ability to stand. Rather, it's a faith in the power and the promises of God. We're to be firm in the faith. There's a definite article in the Greek that points out that this is the authoritative, once delivered body of truth from God in the scriptures. Lord, I believe in that. That's what I'm believing in. It's like what Jude wrote about earnestly contending for the faith, the body of truth. The faith is the body of truth that we believe in. And it's by our confidence in that truth that we're able to resist the devil. And Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, captures that. When he says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Lord, Lord, I believe that the smallest word from your word is able to slay the devil. (laughs) Lord, that's where I'm putting my confidence. I'm putting my confidence in you and your word. I'm putting my confidence in the once for all delivered faith to the saints. Our confidence is not in our own striving. Our confidence is not in picking up an inkwell and tossing it at Satan. Satan, I bind you. I command you to go back to the pit where you came from. That's not where our confidence lies. Our confidence lies in the word of God. We can rest assured in the power of God and his word. And listen, if if you've been born again, if you've been born through faith in the word of God, that, that word is considered a seed that's indestructible, imperishable. And that seed that has given you life has granted you a life that is also indestructible. The the life that I now have is a life that can't be taken away. It's eternal. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And that's the word that's been preached to you. And because of your new life, and it comes from an indestructible source, that life that's been given by that indestructible source is also imperishable. It can't, it can't fade. It can't perish. It can't be destroyed. And true believers... True believers are considered those who have a faith to the persevering of the soul, the preserving of the soul, that faith that comes as a gift from God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39 says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. My soul is preserved through the faith that I have, the faith that God has granted to me. It's not a desire. It's not a wish. It's an assertion. That I have that kind of faith, the the faith to the preserving of the soul. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, But I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who's my trust in? It's in the one who perfects it. (laughs) It's not in me. It's in the one who perfects my faith. So our confidence is not about what we say about our faith, but what God says about our faith. And it's God's power that protects us ultimately from failing. In Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, 
Amen. That the power to protect our faith comes from God. That's where it comes from. First Peter 1 verse 5 says, you who are protected by the power of God. You're protected. And it's ironic that Peter would be talking about a preserving faith, a persevering faith. Because his faith didn't always look so persevering. <laughs> Matthew 26, 33, Peter said to Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, not me, I'll never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. And just a few hours later, Peter was denying that he even knew the Lord. What qualifies Peter to talk about a persevering faith? What, what qualifies him to talk about a faith that sustains? Because of what Jesus said in Luke 21, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter's faith was real, even though it was weak, it was faltering, but it didn't ultimately fail because Jesus interceded on Peter's behalf. How do we know that Peter's faith was real? Because it bounced back. <laughs> That's how we knew his faith was real. Bounce back. Peter never completely abandoned the Lord. And true believers will never completely abandon the Lord. But it's not because of us. It's because of him. Because he's the one who holds us. I love the illustration that uh, Vody Bakum used one time. He says, you know, as he was walking one of his little uh, children across the street, and he's telling him, you know, hold my hand as I go across the street. And he says at first, they're kind of holding his hand loosely until they, they see a, a car starting to come by. And all of a sudden, they start to grip his hand tighter. It's like, don't, don't, don't let me go. And he says, he, he just kind of looked down. It's like, don't you know that I'm the one that's really holding you? <laughs> you know, you and your little hand trying to squeeze my finger like, oh, no. Like, I'm going to save myself from the car. It's like, no, I'm the one who's got you. Who, who's the one who's holding us? God is the one who's holding us. I love MacArthur's statement. He says, if I could lose my faith, I would. <laughs> if, if I could lose it, I'd lose it every day. Because I'm not that good at keeping it. It's the Lord who has to hold on to me. It's the Lord who's preserving me. Again, Luther says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He's the one who has to win it. So we can stand firm against the roaring of the lion, the threat of persecution, because the scriptures are the foundation of our faith, the once for all delivered faith. The faith, that's what I'm trusting in. And the intercession of Christ on my behalf, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we're called to resist in the foundation of our faith, in the strength of our faith. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we stand firm in the faith? Number one, we have to know what the faith is, right? Know what it is. Know, know what you believe. Know what that once for all delivered faith is, Jude 3. Also, know why you believe it. So why you believe it? Are you able to give a defense? First Peter chapter three and verse 15 speaks about that. Know your faith. Know why you believe in that faith. Meditate upon the words of scripture. Faith comes by, by hearing. And we know that that's uh, talking about salvation, but it's also uh, for those of us who are saved that we're, we're grown and strengthened by our meditation upon God's word. 
You know, Psalm 1 talks about the man who, who's, who's settled, you know, by the, the streams of living water, who meditates upon the word day and night. That's the person who, who grows, who's strong, who's fruitful. Meditate upon the word of God. Pray for your faith. You know, you find yourself weak like the, the man in Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> Lord, I want to believe more. I want to be, believe stronger. I want to have more resolve in my faith, more committed to my faith. Pray that you would believe. And go to Jesus with your doubts. Go to Jesus with your doubts. Just like John the Baptist came to Christ when he was wavering. You need to go to Jesus. Understand who he is. Understand his nature. Understand his person. Sink yourself into the truth of who Jesus Christ is. But God also, in addition to this, gives us examples for faith. Because there are those who are standing firm in the face of suffering. Look again at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The suffering of other believers is an encouragement to persevere. There's something that's strengthening about the stories that we hear about those who are standing firm, isn't there? When we hear about somebody who's standing firm, who's willing to suffer for his faith. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become so well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that for most of the brethren, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Because they heard that I was willing to take a stand and go to prison for my faith, they're more encouraged to stand up for their faith. You know, we took a look at um, uh, the life of, of Jim Elliott, who gave his life on the mission field and how many more signed up to go to that same mission field because they saw that he was willing to sacrifice himself for his faith. You know, in our day, uh, people like James Coates who's willing to go to prison because he's willing to stand by his conviction, that, that grants other people strength to say, you know what, I want to do the same thing. I want to be counted as faithful. One of the believers in Asia Minor heard about the suffering of other believers. It was a reminder that suffering was not unique to them. I'm not the only one going through this. First, first Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Other people are going through the same thing I'm going through. I'm not the only one. You know, I'm not like Elijah out there saying, oh, it's just me. Everybody's bowed the knee to Baal, but me. You're, you're not the only one. And Peter reminds them that their, their brothers across the world were experiencing the same suffering and they're encouraged to stand in solidarity with them. Their, their suffering was fulfilling its intended purpose. Their suffering is being accomplished. It's being completed. It's being perfected. And we have those same examples in our day as well. I received a, an email this week. I'll just go ahead and read it to you. It says, as you've probably heard, Russia may soon invade Ukraine. In light of these reports, missionaries in Ukraine have told us that they plan to remain in country to help during what could be Ukraine's greatest time of need. One of our missionary faculty members shared his outlook on the situation. He says, we have made some contingency plans because it seems like the wise thing to do, but like buying some non-perishable food, water, a propane stove, and packing, bomb shelter backpacks that are ready to go. But as Christians, we are not here to survive. We are here to love the Lord with all of our hearts and joyously give everything we've got toward the fame of the Almighty. When one of their students heard of their choice to stay, he responded by saying, 
It is important to hear that our classes will continue and that you will not leave the, with the USA diplomats. To me and my brethren, you are, in this case, an example of faith. And beyond the training programs, the men who want to stay for the local churches, one missionary writes, our ministry includes pastoral shepherding. As for me, I'm the only pastor in our church, and it is my privilege to pastor our people through this difficult time. Another adds, a major reason for us to stay is to help shepherd our people in our churches, as well as to try and take advantage of gospel opportunities. Just today, my wife got to share the gospel with our neighbor, who is more open because of the threat of an invasion. You know what that is? That's, that's the lion roaring. The lion's roaring. But you don't have to run. You can resist him firm in your faith. And we can be encouraged by the examples of those who are willing to stand firm for the faith. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the way that your, your word brings strength to us. Now, Father, we need strength. We often find our, ourselves weak and faltering. Now, Father, we're like, like Peter oftentimes where uh, we claim that we can stand as bold as a lion, but then a servant girl frightens us into cowering away. Now, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to, to resist Satan, that we would be aware of his devices, his schemes, uh, that, that Satan is, a, is an adversary, but we need to be sober. We need to sober up and we need to wake up. We need to be alert to what's going on in the world around us. And Father, I pray that in the evil day that might come a lot sooner than we think, and Father, that, that we would be found standing firm on your word, on your promises, standing on the promises of God. And Father, help us to, to stand. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, because of our stand that others would be able to stand as well and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would continue to go forth. May you be glorified in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.